October 29, 1964, New York's Museum of Natural History was robbed. The thieves stole 24 priceless gems. Within 48 hours, the thieves had been captured, but they weren't an organized band of robbers. Instead, they were a group of surfer dudes from Miami, and one of them was called Murph the Surf. Hi, I'm Taylor. I'm Kat, and welcome to Square Mile of Murder. I have a cold. <laughs> we're not trying to slowly drift into ASMR. We're not trying to seduce you quietly. <laughs> My voice is a bit fucked this week. Um, bear with us. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be better by next week. I'll boost you in post. You'll, you'll be awesome. yelling the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Today we're talking about Jack Roland Murphy, a.k.a. Murph the Surf, the Natural History Museum heist, the brutal Whiskey Creek murders, Murphy's time in prison, and beyond. Yeah. A lot to pack in this week. Yeah. Um, and I should say this episode was a request from my mother back in like Yay. April. So here you go, yeah. mom. <laughs> Jack Roland Murphy was born on May 26th, 1937, in Oceanside, California, near San Diego. He was the only child of Jack, a telephone company, or possibly electrical company, lineman, and Ruth, a housewife. Jack Sr. was stern and demanded excellence from his only son, and Jack Jr. lived up to his father's expectations. He was a child musical prodigy easily mastering the violin. I used to play violin. Oh, so did the podcast gremlin. Oh, and clarinet as well. Uh, oh, and my mother played viola. Oh. Yes, the chonky violin, <laughs> as they call it, in the orchestra. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm yeah. second chair chonky violin. Yeah, that's exactly what we had. We had three, we had three violinists and then a chonky violin. <laughs> Uh, I played saxophone. Nice. Yeah. I kind of wanted to learn saxophone as well. It's fun. So, yeah. Jack was also a great athlete and became a very good tennis player by his teens. But most of all, he loved surfing. But you didn't as you see that coming, yeah. Yeah. He would haul a 60-pound or 27-kilo longboard made from redwood trees down to the ocean with his friends. On his way to and from the beach, he would count the telephone poles, houses and cars he encountered along the way. Even at this early age, he was honing his eye for detail that would eventually help him pull off the master of all heists. So... A childhood friend of Murphy's, Jack Penrod, told Sports Illustrated, uh, which is one of our big sources for this episode, um, and we'll link that below as per usual. So Jack Penrod told Sports Illustrated that Murphy was very talented and, quote, anything he got a hand on, he accomplished. Uh, this trend continued when the family moved to Western Pennsylvania during Murphy's senior year of high school. Murphy won the singles tennis championship in the region and earned a tennis scholarship to the University of Pittsburgh. But 
college life didn't suit him for long, and after a few months, he left university for sunnier shores. I've seen that happen with quite a few people do, like, so well through school and then just cannot adjust or cope with university. Yeah. I think, like, it just seems, it's from what I gathered from various different sources, like, he just, he just wanted to do everything and, like, sitting in class was not interesting. Yeah. Um, so he hitchhiked to Miami Beach, as you do and started working as sort of an all-around beach activity instructor. So he taught swimming, scuba diving, tennis, and dancing, because everyone goes dancing at the beach, I guess, in the 50s. (laughs) Cool. Um, uh, And he taught them all at resorts and cabana clubs in uh, Miami Beach. He worked as a lifeguard and a performer in a high-dive stunt troupe, um, and while being this sort of world-class beach bum, he met and married Gloria Sostock and had two sons, but the relationship was short-lived and Gloria moved with the boys to Illinois where they had little interaction with and knowledge of their father. Of course, while doing all these other things, Murphy surfed. Uh, he moved to Cocoa Beach and opened up a surf shop that sold custom surfboards, uh, and he would rush to the water when storms rolled in to chase big waves like the ones that he'd grown up with on the West Coast. Uh, He won Florida's state surfing contest in 1962 and 1963 thanks to his impressive surfing skills. And at Christmas, he would paddle out in a Santa suit, much to the delight of many onlookers. All this and more earned him his nickname, Murph the Surf, and for the rest of his life, he would prefer to be called Murph. So that's generally what we're going to call him. Yeah. Unfortunately, Murph was just a bit too early to make money from professional surfing, and he closed his shop in Cocoa Beach after four years, a bad business deal and a failed second marriage. He went back to Miami and he met a man that would change the course of his life. Alan Kuhn was a diving and swimming instructor, and also a thief. Yeah. Kuhn lived a lavish lifestyle, all funded by schemes and stolen valuables. And Murph soon settled into this life quite comfortably. One of their schemes involved stealing artwork. It was vaguely reminiscent. I know. Last week? I know. It's coincidental, it I swear. Week? Yeah, last week's Patreon. Patreon. That was it. Sometimes from the cargo hold of Greyhound buses and contacting the insurance companies who held policies for the art. They would hold the pieces hostage and ask for less than the full insurance coverage. So if a painting was insured for 200000 Murph would ask the company for $70,000 for its safe return. This kept the insurance companies from having to pay out a full claim and netted Murph and Kuhn cash. And the pair didn't stop at paintings and artwork. On the nightclub and bar scene, Murph would take note of jewellery worn by tourists and socialites. 
Then he, Kuhn, and a crew of other beach thieves would break into apartments, mansions, and hotel rooms to lift the loot. They would climb up the balconies of high-rise buildings to break in and then escape on speedboats, winding their way through Miami's waterways. Pretty glamorous. Yeah, it's very... It's very much like a kind of like a Hollywood film. Well, hang on to that thought. <laughs> okay. Um, so Murph was a good thief. Like, he was just good at it. But he also enjoyed the thrill and the puzzle that each theft, each job uh, presented. And pretty soon, Murph, Kuhn, and friend Roger Clark got cocky. In 1964, they drove up the coast to New York. Along the way, they robbed a jewelry store in South Carolina and shot up a police car as they escaped the scene. See, this is when you're getting into dangerous territory. Now, uh, once they were in New York, they continued their high-rolling lifestyle and set up in a Manhattan penthouse where they spent time doing drugs and planning the biggest heist the city had ever seen. Uh, In the meantime, they threw parties in their suite and carried out smaller robberies around town, similar to the ones that they'd done in Miami. So, you know, jewel thefts, breaking into hotel rooms, that sort of thing. Um, They scoped out the Museum of Natural History during the day. And in the J.P. Morgan Hall of Gems, the thieves noticed that the 19 windows in the gem hall were left open for ventilation. And... These priceless gems weren't all that well secured. So the three men set their plan into action. Uh, Kuhn told Murph that the gems were calling to him, saying, Take us to Miami. And Murph's response was, Well, let's take them to Miami. Oh yeah, because I always do what gems tell me to do. It's not like a crazy thing at all. On the night of October 29th, 1964, Roger Clark stayed in uh, their rented Cadillac as the lookout, and Murph and Kuhn set to work. They scaled the fence of the museum's courtyard and climbed up a fire escape. There, they secured a rope to a pillar above the Hall of Gems' fourth-floor windows. Uh, Murph then used his surf-honed balance skills to traverse a narrow fifth-floor ledge and swung on the rope towards the windows, and he used his feet to open the windows wider, and then he and Kuhn descended into the hall. Okay. <laughs> I just... It's all... It's, it's, it's very acrobatic. <laughs> yeah. It's... It sounds very amateurish. Well, Yeah. It was. That's the thing. Mm. When looking at the display cases, they noticed that the batteries for the silent alarms had corroded, rendering them useless. Oops. (laughs) They taped up the display cases to keep the glass from shattering, then used a glass cutter to access the jewels. In all, they got 24 gems, including the world's biggest sapphire, the 563-carat Star of India Sapphire, the 16-carat Eagle Diamond, and the world's most perfect ruby, the 100-carat DeLong Star Ruby. These sound like very fancy 
They are um, very gems. Very fancy. I'm just gonna have a quick look at the pictures. Yeah. The, oh wow. The sapphire is cool. That is so cool. That's pretty. Yeah. It's like crazy. We'll we'll put pictures um on social media, but like they're they these are huge gemstones worth lots so of cool. money in case you can't tell i really like shiny <laughs> stones i seriously do i love geology i think it's so cool it, it and, and it's fascinating no fuck all about it but you know yeah no i agree also it's cool to like read some of the backgrounds of how these were found like the eagle diamond was found in so somewhere like wisconsin from a guy who's just digging in the ground in the 1800s so like I, I think it's awesome. So, lots of pictures of the gems. Yes. Yeah, so all the while, a lone security guard making rounds on that floor would occasionally shine his flashlight into the room, but fail to notice the thieves at work. And apparently they were there for hours. I mean... <laughs> Oops. So... The group retraced their steps and left the museum with their bounty. The theft wasn't noticed until 10am the next morning when the NYPD's 20th precinct on the Upper West Side got a call. The Natural History Museum had been broken into. Detectives found the Hall of Gems in disarray. Broken glass, cut apart display cases and of course a load of missing gems. Yeah. Soon, the press swarmed the museum and started reporting on the historic theft. The lackluster security was splashed across newspaper headlines and baffled the cops. The value of the stolen goods was placed at $410,000, or around $3.3 million today. I would have thought it would actually be... A lot more than that, yeah. but because of the rarity, they are technically considered priceless and irreplaceable. Yeah. But yeah, I thought even if we take away that thing, I looking at the pictures, I thought they would have been worth a lot more. That's than that. Yeah, I think maybe that's what they were purchased for, or something like in all. Yeah, I mean that they'll have to have some kind of monetary value. Yeah for insurance well okay yeah so if you can't tell because i've been ill taylor did the script this week so i don't actually know what's coming up next <laughs> because i can't really sit upright for more than two or three hours um before i start to feel really ill again so <laughs> yeah so yeah technically priceless but that would have made the premiums outrageously high. So, forget what I just said about insurance, because the museum hadn't insured them. Oh, so they didn't secure them, didn't insure them. One old guy with a flashlight was the only... I mean, this sounds very much like an inside job, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, surprisingly. <laughs> um, so... The three surfers were in the wind, but not for long. 
After news of the robbery broke, a bellhop at their hotel tipped off the police, uh, noting the men's high-rolling habits for the last several weeks that they'd been in the city. Police raided their penthouse suite and found marijuana, cocaine, burglary tools, sneakers with glass stuck in the soles, a floor plan of the Natural History Museum, and books about precious gems. Uh, I mean, apart from the the weed and the coke, that just sounds like the box room in our house. <laughs> Loads of books on gems. Burglary tools. Well, we have lots and lots of tools. My dad did work in construction well, so and pipe fitting for like 50 years, 40 odd years. There's so. probably things that could be use, useful in a burglary in there. Yeah. I have a glass so, cutter yeah. in my cupboard over there, so. Oh, so, you know. Never know. Very suspicious. Um, now, th- this is the best part. The search was interrupted when Roger Clark walked in. <laughs> and apparently one of the detectives when he when Clark walked in one of the detectives was in the bathroom washing his hands <laughs> okay so you know uh, um so during questioning Clark caved quickly and told investigators that Murph and Coon had flown to Florida uh, Murph and Kuhn had packed the gems into an overnight bag and had given the bag to 19-year-old Janet Florkowitz to carry, though uh, she denies having known what she was carrying. Uh, FBI agents quickly found and rounded up the men, but they had already unloaded the jewels to be sold by offense. So investigators eventually recovered some of the jewels through a daring undercover plot, because that's... That's just what this story needs. <laughs> like, I swear to God. Um, so, you know, listening to, to this, I'm starting to understand why why New York had such a crime problem. <laughs> right? It's a, it's a little bit. It's fine. It was the 60s. Things were different. Maybe. Sure. Um... So, uh, I mean, all we need now is one of the original five New York Mafia families to turn up. I know, right? Uh, you're not about to tell me that happens. No, not not that I know of. But oh, there is a there is a some gang connections later on. So, you know, um, uh, New York prosecutor Maurice Nadjeri took Kuhn. Uh, who was looking to cooperate with investigators for a potentially more lenient sentence. So he took Kuhn out of jail in New York, unbeknownst to the FBI, apparently, um, and escorted him to Miami with two other detectives. They moved from motel to motel, uh, apparently to avoid the FBI, who was trying to track them down. Uh, and started negotiating the return of the stolen gems. At one point, uh, Nadri put on a snorkel mask and searched underwater in Biscayne Bay for jewels that had supposedly been stashed near Kuhn's boat. Eventually, they managed to negotiate the return of the Star of India. A fence dropped it off in a locker in a Miami bus terminal. And uh, the Star of India and a handful of other jewels were found inside the locker in pouches soaked in salt water. 
Their search also recovered the DeLong Star Ruby. Uh, However, the Eagle Diamond was never found, and investigators suspected that it had been cut into smaller diamonds and sold in pieces. Uh, Coon, Clark, and Murph pled guilty to burglary and gland larceny. There you go. Pled guilty to burglary and grand larceny, and each served around three years on Rikers Island. Yeah. Even three years in Rikers must be rough. During the investigation, they had also been charged with the Miami robbery and pistol whipping of actress Ava Gabor. That occurred in January of 1964. But the actress declined to go to trial because she was too busy filming the sitcom Green Acres in Los Angeles. Fucking love that show, can I just say? I've never heard of oh, it. Oh, it's great. She <laughs> she moves to a farm with a, a, a man. I think his name is Arnold. There's a pig. It's just, cool. it's fantastic. Classic 60s sitcom. <laughs> Throughout their trial, the three men were constant features in the press. Their youth, surfer attitude, and movie star good looks captured everyone's attention. In particular, Murph gained an almost folk hero-like reputation. When they were released from Rikers, Clark eventually went straight and faded into normal life. Murph and Coon went the other way. When he was released in 1967, Murph bounced around a world of crime. He told Sports Illustrated that he was involved in some extreme violence and murder, including Boston gang wars that ended up with 60 people dead. And then in November 1967, Things got really bad. Because, you know, gang war and 60 dead isn't really bad. Well, so he, apparently when he was talking to Sports Illustrated, he said he was involved with certain things, but would never go into detail about, like, his specific involvements. (laughs) Almost like plausible deniability yeah, exactly like i was there but i was kind of at arm's yeah, length from it all. yeah murph and coon were working with 23 year old terry ray frank and 21 year old annalee mon to steal five hundred thousand dollars or four million dollars today uh worth of stocks and bonds from the brokerage firm where the two women worked in los angeles the two secretaries had stolen the stocks and met up with murph and coon in florida in later accounts, Murph and Kuhn insist that the women had stolen the stocks by themselves, uh, and Frank had a previous conviction for forgery that may or may not support that. But evidence suggests that Murph may have masterminded the whole thing. It was in Florida in December 1967 that Murph became a whole new level of criminal. Uh, Mon and Frank had joined Murph and Jack Griffith, another sort of Miami Beach underworld figure, I guess, on a midnight speedboat ride in Florida's intercoastal waterways. Uh, They were making plans to turn the stock and bond certificates into cash, but suddenly the conversation turned and one of the women got angry. 
She warned the men that if they didn't give her a fair share of the stolen money, she'd tip off the FBI. Now, what happened next changes based on who's telling the story. If we go by Murph's account, years later, there was actually a third guy on the boat called Rusty. Murph was driving the boat when the argument broke out. He said Rusty lashed out at the women, beating them and ultimately killing them. Murph did admit to helping to dispose of the bodies, including weighing them down with concrete blocks in the hopes that they would sink to the bottom of the murky Whiskey Creek, never to be found. Murph's own defence attorney denied ever hearing of a third man on the boat, and more than 200 witnesses involved in the case had no recollection of this extra passenger. If you go by the account that came out at trial, Rusty never existed. Murph and Griffith viciously killed Frank and Moan by beating and shooting them, then disposed of the bodies in the water. The two women's bodies were recovered the same day they went into the water. The police worked up a case over the next five months before they arrested Murph and Griffith. Uh... So during the five months that the police were working on their case and uh, the, the dudes were not in jail, uh, Murph and his crew attempted another major robbery. They broke into a mansion belonging to Miami Beach socialite Olive Wofford in early 1968. Uh, they tried to break into a safe, and when they failed, they threatened to pour boiling water on Wofford's young niece if she didn't open it. Uh, but the crew had triggered a silent alarm, and Murph was acting as the lookout when he saw the cops headed toward the mansion. He prepared for high noon, as he'd later describe it, and of course he did. Yeah. And in a gunfight, Murph fired his forty-five pistol at the cops, and then dove out of a set of French doors, badly slicing his face in the process. Uh, he and the rest of his crew were captured. And Murph was led into the police station in a hospital gown with bandages all over his face, which was a far cry from his earlier image of, you know, perfectly tailored suits, coiffed hair, and skinny ties. <laughs> so Murph told Sports Illustrated that that's when he knew things had truly changed for him. He said, quote, my goofy Beach Boy cover was blown. Now they knew. He, he'll pull the trigger. Uh... During the trial for Frank's murder, Murph blamed Griffith, and Griffith blamed Murph. And on March 1st, 1969, a jury convicted Jack Murphy of first-degree murder, and he was handed a life sentence. Uh, Griffith was found guilty of second-degree murder and given 45 years. And after the trial for Frank's murder, nobody was tried for Mon's murder. I mean, that's pretty shitty. Yeah, it is. Because why couldn't they try them for both murders That's at what the same time? I didn't quite understand, but they just never did. A year after his conviction, Murph picked up a second life sentence for the attempted robbery of Olive Wofford. Murph tried to appeal his case, 
all the way up to the Supreme Court, but wasn't successful, and prepared to sit in prison until he died. His first years in Florida State Prison in Stark were rocky. Murph ran a gambling operation, smuggled in drugs, and ended up spending seven months in isolation for triggering a riot. That's... well... He's, he's not letting his prison life go to waste, no, is he? He's getting on he's with it. He's busy, you know. Uh, Murph spent time in isolation, meditating and dropping acid. Why, if they knew he was smuggling in drugs, why, how did they not search him before he went into isolation? I don't know. Yeah, like, it is unclear to me how he was getting his acid in isolation, but apparently he did. (laughs) Uh, He recounted a visit from Louis Wainwright, Uh, Florida's Secretary of the Division of Corrections, to Sports Illustrated. Uh, Wainwright gave Murph a talking to for not using his intellect and people skills for good. Talking to. That'll do it. (laughs) He saw that Murph had the respect and attention of his fellow prisoners and suggested the former surfer should try using his skills in ways that could benefit others instead of railing against the system. The message didn't get through right away, but did start to percolate a bit. In 1974, Dallas Cowboys quarterback Roger Staubach and retired Cleveland Browns defensive lineman Bill Glass made a visit to Stark. Glass spent a lot of time volunteering in prisons and was surprised when he met Murph because the inmate was wearing alligator loafers. I think he must have had some ins with the guards based on some of these details. I'm just going to blow straight past that. <laughs> he is also struck by Murph's intelligence and confidence. During the visit, Glass made a speech that talked about finding salvation and maybe even forgiveness in the Bible. And this time, the message got through to Murph. He decided that if he ever wanted to see life beyond the prison walls, he needed to change. He slowly began to turn his life around. He weaned himself off drugs and started taking advantage of the reform programs available to inmates. He attended visits by businessmen and religious leaders and spent as much time as possible in the prison chapel. He mentored his peers and even taught some how to read. Now, it's hard to say if Murph's new faith in the Lord was legit or just another scheme that he was excelling at. I mean, but either is possible. Either, yeah. Either way, it worked out for him. Uh, In 1982, the State Parole Board, under Wainwright's recommendation, changed Murph's parole eligibility date to 1990. Uh, In 1984, Murph was moved out of Stark into a work-release prison ministry program in Orlando. And on October 22, 1986, the parole board voted 5-2 to and granted Jack Murphy's parole request. He had served just 17 years for the brutal murders of Terry Ray Frank and Annalie Mon. Although, remember, technically... Not technically for Mon, yes. 
Yeah, so 17 years for one murder. No, I don't think it's acceptable, but... But it's not unheard of. No. And if, like you say, this, you know, complete turnaround in character and newfound faith and everything, if that was genuine... Then... Then you could see someone being allowed out after that period of time. Yes, yeah, definitely. he was a con man. And he could have very easily also conned prison staff into believing that he was legit. Yeah. Um, so from 1986 on Murph the Surf spent massive amounts of time visiting prisons and telling his story to inmates and urging them to find religion. He worked with groups like the International Network of Prison Ministries and preached to inmates in dozens of countries. Uh, by 2000, Based on his work, the Florida Parole Board wiped away the the conditions of his lifetime parole. He continued his work in prisons while living in Crystal River, Florida. Uh, In 2012, Murph went to then-Florida Governor Rick Scott and members of the Florida Cabinet to ask for clemency and the restoration of his civil rights after his years spent repenting. Uh, But they declined. (laughs) And... The Florida Attorney General at the time, Pam Bondi, told Murph that he had been lucky to avoid execution for his role in the Whiskey Creek murders. Okay, as a non-American, what is the role of the governor? They have some power over prison stuff. So, like, they're the ones who stay executions... Um, they can grant clemency or like pardons for people. Um, so yeah. So what he, he asked the governor and the cabinet to grant him clemency and restore his right to vote and Mm. like one other thing. Yeah. Um, Cause I think I understand the role of like Congress and the Senate (laughs) <laughs> and I think I've got a handle on that. You know, I've yeah. been following the news a lot lately. Yeah. Because there's nothing else to do. We're trapped inside all day. I was like, what's a governor actually do? Well, so so you've got like Congress, right? Well, yeah. each state has a Congress as well. So okay. each state has legislators and state senators and state representatives. So kind of think of like the governor so as the, the president governor, like, of the state yeah yeah that 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 was the conclusion i was slowly coming to yes yeah right so kind of this similar powers um but in just terms on of a, like a state level as opposed yeah. to a federal exactly level. okay yeah. you, you learn so much from this podcast right uh murph remained a part of popular culture after his time in prison the 1975 film Murph the Surf, also known as Live a Little, Steal a Lot, was based on the Natural History Museum heist and starred Don Stroud as Murph. Murph wrote his own story in 1989 in an autobiography, Jewels for the Journey. In the book, he detailed his life as a thief and his time in prison, as well as his conversion to Christianity. But the book made no mention of the Whiskey Creek murders. 
He spoke at length with the New York Times in 2019 about the museum heist for the feature article. How a band of surfer dudes pulled off the biggest jewel heist in New York history. He was reportedly working on a screenplay based on his life in April of last year. He was inducted into the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame for his skill and titles won in the Florida Waves. Are there not laws in the US about profiting from crime? Uh, yeah. He's like written his own book, working on a screenplay. I assume he gets paid for these. But I think it's, um, I think those like, those laws have to be specifically pursued. So, like, in civil court, maybe, by crime victims. Um, Interesting. I'm just basing that off of, I don't know if you've seen The Staircase, but, uh, Fucking what's I, his name? Yeah, I know who you mean. I have watched some of it, and eventually I was like, nah, he did it. I'm bored now. Well, exactly. So he, he, his, um, so his wife's children, like, sued to, to make sure that he couldn't profit off of the, the crime that he was convicted of. I thought his of. children supported him. His children, but he, hit, um, she had children. <gasps> Separately. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so, like, I think, and I could be wrong, I'm probably wrong, but I think it's a thing that you have to, like, specifically go after. So. So, Murph's sons learned their father's identity in 1972, and they would visit him in prison. Now in their 60s, they told Sports Illustrated that they don't push their father on his past, They say that he's sorry and they've all moved on. His son Michael said he would have done almost anything to not have done that. That's enough. No, two people are dead. Well, exactly. And uh, in the Sports Illustrated article, writer Brian Burnsed brings up the very valid point. Is it enough? Um, Terry Ray Frank and Annalie Mon didn't get to decide if Murphy's penance was enough. Their families have long, long since died, and who knows how much of Frank and Mon exist in the memories of random people. Many accounts of Murphy's life and crimes relegate the Whiskey Creek killings to a footnote, glossing over them as Murphy would likely prefer. And after all, it's easier to be a folk hero when people don't remember the murders you committed. That's that's very true. After the deaths of most of Murphy's co-conspirators and accomplices, uh, Kuhn included, he died in 2017, he was the only one left telling the story. And he got to paint his life with the colors of redemption. And that's certainly what he focused on after mm. being released from prison. Now, was it all a facade? That's hard to say. Like, and I don't think we'll ever know. Uh, but it was a hell of a story. And the final page came in September 2020 when Jack Roland Murphy died of heart failure at the age of 83. So that is the story of Murph the Surf, the Natural History Museum heist, and the murders of Terry Ray Frank and Annalie Mon. 
that point you just made, he was the last one telling the story. He yeah. could make it what he wanted. He could, like, say he could gloss over the fact that two people died. Yeah. Well, and well, in... technically, he killed a person. He was convicted of that murder. Yeah. So exactly, it's not even glossing over the fact that two people died. It's glossing over the fact that he killed someone, he, and, and then there was another death he was linked to. Yeah, and like that's the thing in in later years and like to sports illustrated like he swears there was this other guy that rusty he was on the boat he killed them like but that's you know so the interview with sports illustrated was from april 2020 that's when it was published so that's 1967 it's like 50 years later he has a lot more writing on saying Oh, it wasn't me. 53 years, by the way. Okay, I did 53 the math. years. I did yeah. the math. I counted on my hands. Good job. I don't even bother anymore. <laughs> but yeah, 53... And after 53 years, Who's you're going to forget details as well. Oh, yeah. So you can, and, and so you can be like, oh, no, well, it was this and it was that. And people are going to be like, well, my memory's not as sharp as it was 53 years ago. Yeah. And like... I don't know. So I think this case is really fascinating or this man is really mm -hmm. fascinating. Like, and I think what it comes down to is that like he was a super charismatic con man. Yeah. And he was a super charismatic preacher. And sometimes that's the same thing. Yeah. I'd say a lot of the time the two overlap. Yeah. That Venn diagram is almost a circle. <laughs> yeah. And so like, what I what really gets me about this case is that it really begs the question, like, if someone, you know, repents and spends their time reforming themselves in prison and turning their life around and then is released from prison and does not commit further crimes, which as far as anyone knows, he never did. Do we forgive their previous actions that may be brutal yeah. and horrific? And who has the right to offer forgiveness? Yeah. In this case, you know, would it be Terry Ray Frank and Annalie Moan's families? Is it, you know, the Federal Museums? Yeah. Like, is it... Is it all the people they robbed in Miami? Who gets to say who gets to say what is redemption and what is forgiveness in these cases? Yeah, exactly. And it's a very sort of existential crisis leading question. <laughs> yes. But I find it interesting because I am a big believer in in you know prison not just being about punishment and about it being about reform and about yeah. people being able to make a, a like a real contribution to society or even just live as normal citizens mm -hmm. um because we see you can see it you know like the cycle of poverty how that leads to crimes we can see how the for-profit prison system even in this country is absolutely fucked in america i don't i just <laughs> not even gonna go there yeah, yeah. um so but then I'm still like, he still murdered someone. So at what point do we, we stop focusing on re 
redemption and reform and start being like, no, you have to be punished. For me, that is, you know, murder, rape, things like that, serious assault. Violent crimes. Yeah, very serious violent crimes where people just aren't safe to be in the community. Dime bag of weed, fuck off. Not so much, yeah. Yeah. Now, and like, and so that's the thing, like, is 17 years long enough for what is basically two murders when he was given two life sentences like i don't know and i think i struggle with this one a lot because his redemption such as it may have been um was couched in the language of religion and i really balk at religion yeah but but like (laughs) like it's so it's like my gut when i hear oh well he found god in prison and then turned his life around to me that's like i want to say well that's bullshit he was a con man he knew what he had to do to get out but maybe he did find god like i don't know and also if like in the west if you're in prison and you're like oh i found god it's like oh brilliant if you were like i found allah hell no you're going in solitary for a long time yeah it's true and like which is why the whole finding religion means nothing yeah as far as i'm concerned your religion is for you it is not you know some of the worst people you will ever meet are in church on a sunday morning (laughs) a lot of the worst (laughs) just ask the catholics Uh. i mean the catholic church and authorities in boston at one point turned child abuse into an industry where everyone got payouts yeah so religion isn't by no means a marker no and that's the thing your character of who you are as a person of your intent of reformation of redemption it means nothing what um what the writer uh brian burns said brought up actually in the Sports Illustrated article, there was a point that I really loved. And he basically said like, so he was watching Murph uh, speak to a group of inmates. And he said that after the presentation, a bunch of them came up to him and were like, this, this is like really impacted me. And like, I, you know, I, I want to, I want to follow your path. I, I, I want to do things differently. But, you know, he he notes in the article that, like, most of these men will not have that opportunity because they won't be able to navigate the legal system the same way Murph did. They won't they don't have, you know, the the skills, the people skills or the education or just by the nature of their race, like they won't be that lucky. So is it in essence that? that is false hope is it you know like just a small sliver perhaps might follow a similar path yeah but i don't know there's there's so much moral stuff and ethical stuff wrapped up in this that yeah and i think this this sort of this past year has definitely shown or definitely brought to a lot more people's consciousness how much the legal system is based on how much money you have. Yeah. Everything to do with COVID is fines. So Rita Ora, 
paid paid a restaurant like five grand so she could hold a party there like basically bribed them with five grand she's got to pay a 10 grand fine no big deal for her so that's 15 grand but that's pocket change to her yeah um obviously there's been a lot about bali because of that american couple yes i have lots of thoughts on i'm not going to go into it now (laughs) but there's shit tons of particularly americans and australians going there breaking rules and they're like oh well i don't you know it's like i'm not wearing a mask i don't care but the fine for not wearing a mask in bali is the equivalent of five u.s dollars or sorry seven u.s dollars something like that it's less than 10 bucks so the rules don't apply to you because you can buy your way out so easily yeah it's true and it's the same thing here because uh murphy had such a good education and i'm presuming was white yes he's yeah a blonde white guy (laughs) yeah um he was afforded those opportunities that other people in the correction system will not be yeah never will never get the chances education is constantly being gutted they don't know how to navigate the legal system they can't afford better representation even like if you think about like so apparently when he approached um the florida cabinet for clemency governor rick scott was on his side governor rick scott who is now a republican senator and is a total whack job but like that wouldn't happen if he was black oh no oh fuck no in a southern state no never never ever yeah like you say if if he was it was a poor black guy he he wouldn't be seen as a folk hero he wouldn't have had would he have even been able to get that close to the governor no you know Uh, he wouldn't have been released in the first place well yeah he would not be seen as he wouldn't have this folk hero uh, reputation either yeah yeah exactly like it, it it like he's got a he had a movie made about his life like it's a mm. in many ways that he he was this like sort of glamorous cat burglar type you know yeah. a, a sort of a spy movie kind of feeling right especially it's like mm-hmm. the 60s it's that was very much part of the culture at the time a popular culture but yeah, it's, I don't know, it's interesting. I, like, it makes for a hell of a read, his life story. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, does that make it okay? No. I don't know. It's so, it's so tough. But, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad we covered it, because I think it's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I'm really glad, because I have been ill, so this has been, like, a nice sort of respite, <laughs> and I'm going to go and curl up in my nest for a few hours to yeah. recover um but no like it is interesting it brings up a lot of questions that we're never going to answer yeah um they say might lead to an existential crisis or two why not thank you so much for listening uh, let us know what you think about the case on social media and be sure to check out some of our sources in the show notes and on our website to learn more about this case. Please give us your thoughts. Tell us what existential crisis this case led to because yes. I'm about to have one. Yeah. Oh, uh, and if you watch, we'll link it in the show notes, but um, 
the the movie is the Murph the Surf movie, Live a Little, Steal a Lot, is on YouTube in its entirety. So if you <laughs> would like to go watch that, please let us know what you think. I haven't watched it yet, but I may well do that. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, be sure to subscribe whenever you listen, and you'll never miss a new episode. Yeah. Um, and if you'd like to support the show, uh, you can join our Patreon page. Uh, every patron gets regular episodes a day early, and we also release three bonus episodes every month on Patreon. Um, and also, uh, we do want to say, like, if there's anything specifically that you would like to see offered on our Patreon page that would be like, oh, I totally would love that, then let us know because, you know, we'd love to hear your ideas and we're just kind of, <laughs> we're kind of going blind of like, maybe people like this. So yeah. we'd know, I'd love to know what you would actually like. Yeah, it, it's a bit like shouting into the void. We know you're out there because people are listening. Yeah. But we don't know what you think. <laughs> yeah. So like, tell us things. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we also have some cool designs in our merch shop on all kinds of products. And uh, so if you want to rep the pod in person, then you can do that. Uh, you can find the link to that and all of the other things we've mentioned in the show notes for this episode or on our website, which is squaremovemurder.com. And uh, I think that's all we have for you today. Yeah. So we'll uh, see you next week, I think. Yeah. Bye. Bye.